Welcome to the Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. The Clark Hewlings Fund exists to turn working artists into thriving artists. I'm Daniel Degree, your host. Out there in the podcast universe, our listeners find us on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Radio FM, and nearly every other audio programming platform. We're very proud to bring you substantive programming from the business side of the art world. But we also want you to know that the Thriving Artist Podcast is part of a suite of educational programs offered by the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. For instance, the Art Business Accelerator is an intensive year-long learning experience for a competitively selected group of working artists. In fact, our 2019 class has just been announced. The CHF Digital Learning Portal is available right now and 24-7 for registration at clarkhewlingsfund.org and includes digital learning in a variety of formats for busy working artists. And the CHF Art Business Conference occurs several times per year in cities all over the U.S. In fact, registration is now open for the two-day February 1st event in Fort Lauderdale, Florida and March 23rd in D.C. Keep listening and spend some time with us at clarkhewlingsfund.org to discover some of the other ways you can support your career as a thriving artist along with the Clark Hewlings Fund. Now, our guest today is Bonnie Clearwater. She's the director and chief curator at NSU Art Museum in Fort Lauderdale. Before that, she was executive director and chief curator of the Museum of Contemporary Art in North Miami, executive director of the Lannan Foundation Art Programs in Los Angeles, and director of the Lannan Museum in Lake Worth, Florida. Bonnie is originally from Rockland County, New York. As well as being known for her scholarship on contemporary and modern art, particularly Mark Rothko, Bonnie is recognized for her curatorial vision, museum education and outreach programs, and developing the careers of emerging artists. Welcome to the show, Bonnie. Thank you for having me. Well, it's really a pleasure, and I want to talk to you a little bit in the first segment of our show about developing the art scene beyond New York City. Now, you've become well-known as someone who can bring the art scene in a city to the next level, which you did in Los Angeles, and then North Miami, and now Fort Lauderdale. So can you tell us first, what was the art world like in L.A. in the 1980s, and how did it change during your time there? Well, uh, Los Angeles has had a very long art history, and um, and it seems to have been going in cycles. I mean, you um, had great collectors there in Louise and Walter Arensberg in the uh, 40s and 50s. And of course, there was the great explosion or boom of arts that happened in the uh, early 60s there. Um, good deal of it happening around uh, the Pasadena Art Museum, which was um, directed at that time by one of my role models, uh, Walter Hopps, who also was the, one of the founders of the Paris Art Gallery. That gallery and also the Nicholas Wilder Gallery were really featuring not only artists who were up and coming in Los Angeles at the time, such as, uh, as Ed Richet, um, but they were also bringing in uh, the contemporary artists from New York, uh, who were uh, the peers of the artists in uh, Los Angeles. So um, Pasadena Art Museum, where Walter Hopps was director, was organized the first uh, retrospective of uh, Marcel Duchamp. And this was a big event, and it coincided with a early show of Andy Warhol's Soup Cans at the Ferris Gallery. And um, it really put Los Angeles art scene on the map. People came in from all over the world. Um, the artists uh, got to meet uh, Duchamp, and um, it was a big catalyst for the kind of more conceptual uh, work that developed out of uh, Los Angeles. There was a big boom after that, and um, but then there seemed to have been cycles in Los Angeles. It would boom, and then it would get quiet for a while. A lot of these 
artists in Los Angeles did have representation and were part of the international art scene. Also, I think one of the most important things was that the Art Forum magazine was actually originally published out of California. And that was really important because it was really documenting not only what was happening in New York and, and the international art world, but it had a perspective that was coming from Los Angeles. When I arrived there in 1985, it was definitely a period of booming again. I was heading the Lannan Foundation, which was um, probably the uh, biggest art foundation after the Getty at that point. But the focus of the foundation was on emerging and underrecognized artists. So it was my role to seek out um, these artists in Los Angeles and elsewhere. But I think the fact that I was based there meant that I was able to pay more attention to what was going on in that area. In addition, the gallery scene in Los Angeles at that time was also thriving. And um, the other important aspect is that LA had a very strong base of art schools. Uh, we're producing really amazing um, artists who by that point realized it wasn't necessary to collect your degree and leave for New York on the next plane. They saw that artists such as Ed Rocher and John Baldessari, who was a very influential art teacher at CalArts, were making international careers, even though they were based in Los Angeles. And in fact, their work greatly was um, derived from their experience and perspective from being in Los Angeles. So a lot of the artists of the 80s, uh, who graduated in the 80s, um, decided to stay in Los Angeles rather than move to New York. And that coincided with the period that I was there. So I got to meet these artists and realized that there was a whole new scene happening. And um, it is interesting because today we think of, wow, the Los Angeles art scene is so hot and so um, so well recognized internationally. But in the mid 1980s until definitely until uh, I would say till 88, uh, it didn't have that kind of recognition worldwide. So it was an interesting period, and I got to know a lot of the artists there, and it really was a way of spotting who was coming up and interesting in LA. Of course, pretty much ever since, Los Angeles art scene has been recognized as thriving and a place to look for new artists. So Bonnie, um, you know, we're talking about um, the art scene. Let's talk about, let's zoom in a little bit and talk about, you know, the individual artist. So you have an artist that listens to the narrative of the growth of a place like Los Angeles, clearly an art magnet. Um, but who lives and works in a smaller city. What does an artist like that, uh, somebody that lives in you know, Yogastan, Wisconsin, what do they do to become seen and recognized in a bigger playing field? Well, first of all, you have to be producing really great work. There's so many platforms now for an artist living in obscure or uh, out-of-the-way places to get their work out and be seen. But nothing can happen unless the artist's work is truly work that is going to attract the attention of curators and art dealers and collectors and other artists. So that's the number one thing. 
that an artist needs to do. The other is to is really network. Make sure if there is a museum or an art center or, or dealers that the artists attend these events. I mean, to me, it's very important for a museum, an ICR museum, as our primary audience is artists. And we're there to educate and, and connect artists to uh, the new art today or the art of the past. Um, so that's the very number one thing an artist needs to do in order to start being able to get their work out in front you know, and, and known. Uh, it's really hard to just send the work out uh, with a cold to a uh, gallery or a curator, you know, just you know, sending images without any connection. There are, um, if there are grants in those locales that are there to help foster artists, they should definitely apply for those. First of all, in most cases, those grants are reviewed by a peer panel or of professionals, either curators or critics, and therefore it's getting in front of the, exactly the people that you want. Even if you might not get the grant, at least the work is being seen. And um, I can tell you that a number of the artists I've picked have come through that venue. The other thing to do is to travel, make sure that they know what's happening uh, uh, in the rest of the United States or their region or and around the world. Uh, find other artists to be able to talk to. You know, when artists are in art school, they have a support base that will critique them. But what happens after graduation and artists is in their studio all alone, there's no one to talk to, no one to get that critical feedback from. So it's important to also um, build up a network of artists that one uh, respects and have that kind of critical dialogue. Well, that, that's certainly uh, singing our song. You know, we did a, a survey recently of Art Business Summit attendees, and uh, 69% of them uh, called out you know, a, a strong demand for you know, artist networks or ways to, to network, as you said. And so once you work on the quality of work, um, or, or you know, even so you can figure out uh, how to work on the quality of work or whether your work is up to snuff, you, you, need, to, you need to have a network. And... You know, one of the big challenges, of course, is about a third of, of artists sampled don't really attend a single art event in the average week. You know, they don't, they, and a lot of that can be isolation, you know, limited access to those networks, and um, it can be a, a lack of opportunities to, to collaborate um, at some networking events, et cetera. But um, it's certainly a, a huge need. And, and they really need to know to do that. It, it's, it, I, I would say that one of the most important things that they can do. And I know that at our openings, our lectures and events, I know which artists are making the effort, not just to be there you know, in order to get in front of me, but they're there to educate themselves, to be stimulated, to connect and have a dialogue with others that might inspire them. And also through that network, you know, when there's exhibitions such as the Whitney Biennial, for instance, they will typically have either people, you know, curators or contacts in that region itself recommending artists for them to look at, or they'll come to town and they'll go visit one artist that they're interested in 
And that artist is likely to say, oh, you really need to see so-and-so as well. And this happens all the time, not just the Whitney Biennial, other exhibitions uh, that do try to do a kind of understanding of what's happening out beyond New York and Los Angeles. I'm interested in this concept of an emerging artist because I think not only is there some ambiguity there by in what people mean, but there's also, it's fraught with a couple of difficulties. You know, one thing, uh, Bonnie, I think, is that uh, some artists struggle to be even seen as emerging, uh, possibly because, you know, there's a limited number of tastemakers or, you know, a limited scope of early and mid-career artists um, uh, as art polarizes into these super high dollar sales uh, that we see going on in the news now fairly routinely. Uh, and uh, at the low end, sort of, you know, a democratized but underrepresented set of, of artists and, and a body of art. So I guess I have a couple of questions. One is, how does an artist go from the box of being completely unknown to being regarded, as, assuming the quality of the work isn't the issue, but to being regarded as emerging um, it, you know, uh, so that they have some exposure and some name recognition. And also, how did you become interested in supporting the careers of what people call emerging artists? Maybe you could elaborate on that. I think any artist who hasn't achieved uh, worldwide recognition is falls under that category of emerging. So I, I wouldn't make that distinction. There's also under-recognized artists, artists who've had some success, but they're still not on everybody's radar. And, um, and the art world is always working like that. The art world is always looking for artists who are underrepresented. And uh, so you know, in my career, it's also been where not only do I look for up-and-coming new talent, but also the artists who are overlooked for some reason or another, it wasn't the right time, um, the right place, and now they seem bright and fresh. That really started for me when I was uh, the curator of the Mark Rothko Foundation in New York in uh, the early 1980s. And Rothko particularly was concerned as to why did he become well-known? Whereas a number of the other artists that he started out with at the beginning of his career or got to know later in his career, he felt that they were of great um, talent as well, but yet had not achieved recognition. And um, he had hoped to be able to help artists in that category. And at, at the uh, foundation, we set up grants that after we talking to artists who met that criteria, we found that what they wanted most later in life was to have an incredible exhibition with catalog. Because by the time they're 50s, 60s, they found ways of surviving, um, but they wanted to get the recognition for their work. So we uh, started um, making grants for exhibitions of artists in that category. So that became a, a real interest to me was how does consensus form and why does this happen? Why do artists who are good um, go unrecognized? Uh, when I became the uh, director of art programs at the Lannan Foundation, their emphasis was on new artists, although underrecognized was also within uh, the scope of what we did. And again, it became this interest that I had in how does consensus form? 
in this case, my curatorial work was at the beginning of forming the consensus. My, if I became interested in an artist, either wrote about them or purchased their work or, or organized an exhibition for them, my opinion started counting towards that growth of consensus. But it's, it's very important to understand that not any one person can make an artist. And um, once I put my two cents in, basically it was that whole mysterious world of who they are that makes the decisions of who's the uh, most compelling artist of the time takes over. And um, it is it remains a mysterious process. And as soon as you might think you've identified how it works, it changes. And the, the list of people who are making, who are the influencers changes. So it's hard to say to an artist that they can identify how it's done. Again, the best thing they can do is make their work, have the contacts, and be ready and open to possibilities. Bonnie, I, I want to ask you about what you're looking for when you see an artist's work for the first time. Because we, we hear all the time that, you know, you really got to produce amazing work. And I think some people interpret that as um, my work has to be different than everybody else's work. And the problem with that is you get differentiation, but that differentiation doesn't necessarily mean it's good. You know, it, it can very often um, be differentiation for the sake of differentiation. And I, I wonder, you know, what the uh, what's the aha moment when you know that you want to work with a particular artist? Is it all about the work first? And and if so, what what tells you that the work is an aha piece of work? And and is there more to it than that? Are there other um, things that make you want to work with a an emerging artist besides the work itself? First of all, there is. I've always I explain there is a very thin line in identifying what really is the interesting new work. Um, many people will fall into a pitfall in that they think work that looks so different from everything else that they've seen is the new thing, or that it looks like other work that has been sanctioned as good work and revolutionary work. It really doesn't work out that way. <laughs> Usually it's just novel one way or another and novelty one way or another. It's not, it's a really hard thing to identify what is the work that has the staying power or the, um, the interest um, to hook me in the first place. I could tell you almost exclusively any artist whose work I've been interested in, it's the work that's attracted me first. In most cases, I've never met the artist, but I could see in the work that there is something about it that is true, um, that's compelling, that is bringing a new way for me to think about things, and it's making me want to think about it. Um, and typically, I'll decide to work on, on an artist long before I've ever made contact with them. So it's not so much that individual discussion or someone telling me what I'm looking at. It has to be the art itself. That's the drawer. And um, one of the things that's happened is, for instance, if uh, going to art fairs, you know, at an art fair, there's 
thousands and thousands of work, a lot of times new work that I've never seen. It's a, a visual, you know, barrage when you enter these fairs. And I've discovered that every once in a while in that, you know, maze of, of art galleries at the fairs, I will spot a work that will basically pull me to it across, you know, an aisle or across the crowded room. And if, when a work has that ability, then most cases it is the work that I follow. And it could be very, very quiet work. It could be very tiny work. And it doesn't have to be big, bold, and in your face. And in most cases, I can tell you, it is work that was quieter rather than big and bold that attracted me. So um, it is a, it's a difficult thing to really identify. After I do meet with the artists, I do want to have the sense that there is enough in them to carry a career. That they're what they're trying to do is so expansive and multifaceted that they won't get stuck in one little one idea that they're going to be repeating for the rest of their career. Now, you know, when I hear that the work has to be good, and and that I start by looking at the work, I think what a lot of the audience may hear uh, at times is that there's nothing you can really do uh, beyond. Uh, stay in the studio and make work, that ultimately it, it's a passive approach to reaching people. But maybe that's not true. Let me uh, ask you a question. You, you've given you know, many now well-recognized artists their first American solo shows. When artists are aspiring to that kind of opportunity, um, what's the best way for them to get their work in front of the right curators? Do they have to be passive or are there some active steps they can take? Well, if they're too aggressive, that's not going to work either. As I said, I want to know that an artist is ready to, you know, is, is really challenging themselves, that they are constantly being stimulated by not only art, but the world and ideas. And, you know, there are ways for them to get their works out there. So that they, you know, do make, that the best way is art you know, being driven by other artists more than a dealer, more than other curators or critics. If an artist that I respect tells me, oh, you need to go and look at this artist, I'm likely, more likely to follow it up than in the other, other way. The other thing are, there are collectors who do, you know, that I know that share this kind of interest and they are connected you know, within a range of, of, of artists that they respect and that through them they are introduced to other artists. So that that network, that relationship with um, other artists is really important. And I, I, and I think right now what I am seeing in the art world is that it has returned to um, the artist-driven art world and that well, I've, I've asked a number of artists or galleries why are you showing this artist, whether it's a new artist or it's a, you know, an under-recognized artist who has a 40-year career? And almost every single one said, because so-and-so artist recommend we look at this artist. That if for an older artist, it was their mentor or the, the artist they most respected. Or if it's a young artist, it, they might have done a um, critique 
at art school with them, or they were a studio assistant. There's a, a whole other system out there of studio assistants and also art handlers. For the art handlers at the various museums and galleries are probably the most aware and educated of the art that's happening today. In most cases, they're itinerant. They work for different uh, institutions or galleries. And in many cases, getting to know the artist who's having the show. So they're making connections with these artists that are all over the country or all over the world. Plus, it's providing a source of, of revenue that gives them the opportunity to also have the flexibility of, of working in their studio. So it's not a full-time job that takes them away from their studio. So again, it goes back to that um, relationships with other artists. A side question. Um, you know, there's all of this discussion now about, I mean, it, it's almost to the point of cliche that you hear the art world is changing. The market is, is evolving. We also hear the trope about the power of technology and, and what's, why that's bringing about change in social media, etc. But the elements of the story have to do with a fragmented art world, um, with the influences of art fairs and the internet changing the role of galleries, the decline of galleries, etc. And, you know, one of the things is, yes, we've heard that, but uh, we don't necessarily know how to think about it or what to do about it or, or if anything needs to be done. And it seems that you've suggested um, in an offline conversation that there are some positive aspects to this uh, shift, that it's not all darkness and doom. And I wonder if that's, if that's accurate. Yeah, no, it, it's definitely, and even though you know, the system itself might be changing, the gallery systems, uh, the way the art fair has changed things or technology, you know, it still comes down to the same way. With There has always been thousands and thousands of artists. There's been different systems in bringing them to attention. But it's always going to be that there are the influencers, and we know that through technology, that term alone is very important. The influencers in technology are still shaping the perception of who is worth looking at. Um, I came to this realization with um, some collectors I'm friends with who are got onto the uh, Instagram early and they kept telling me how many people follow them and, and the relationships they're having with people on Instagram that they haven't even met in person. And I realized it's the same as it's always been. Here is this person, an influencer with a circle of collectors and critics and, and dealers and curators observing who are they looking at, who are they buying, who are they passionate about. And that there's not just one of these influencers, there's many different circles going on. And that really is the same way it's always been in the art world. I mean, I did a whole exhibition on this. It was called Defining the 90s Consensus Making in New York, Miami, and Los Angeles, where I really did do a sociological study of how consensus was being formed in each of those cities at, um, during that period. And each one was done differently, and, and each city had a different dynamic. Um, in New York, it was in most cases, it was an individual at that time, usually a woman, uh, who was passionate and was going to the studios and uh, meeting up with 
curators and sharing a passion with them of artists that they saw and they thought others would like to see. In Miami, it was mostly couples of, of collectors uh, who were traveling the world because at that time, it was the early 90s when there was recession. Miami was one, one of the cities that wasn't affected by that recession. And the collectors were traveling and were thinking internationally, not just in the U.S. Uh, and in Los Angeles, in most cases, it was collectors who were really kind of isolated and doing it on their own. And yet they would love to be able to share who they saw, what was interesting, telling you where to go, very generous in their support of the artist. So even though that was pre-technology, it's still the same thing happening today with something like Instagram and Twitter and other platforms. So let me ask you, um, what are the, you talk about influencers, and I, I wonder what are the art writers that you're reading now or that you feel are most influential now, uh, and where do you find uh, the most influential and thoughtful writing about emerging artists? If, if influencers are still an important part of it, um, part of the dialogue, then, then that seems to be an appropriate uh, question. Um, I think that probably where we've seen the biggest uh, shakeup is in the art criticism of the magazines that had been the stalwart of, you know, the source where this kind of critical dialogue was taking place has, has, has changed. There are writers that are interesting to follow, but I don't think people are reading so much as reacting. They'll react uh, quicker to an image and to someone saying, oh, you should look at this more so than doing a, a deep analysis of what makes it interesting. And I think that that's one area that really needs to be boosted now is to have a, a greater sense of context. And what that's one of the things that happens with the art fairs is there's um, works are being seen in isolation rather than within a context. I think this year at Art Basel, there was a greater emphasis on the individual galleries to create a kind of curated exhibition in their booth so that there was an understanding of where this work is coming out of it. And one of the reasons why I can make these decisions is that I am knowledgeable not only contemporary art, but inter you know, and, and not only art in the U.S., but internationally and also from the past. But I'm also in tune with all different other ideas and the you know, philosophy, psychology, perception, history, all of that that feeds into the way that I approach uh, new work. And I would say that there, that's one of the things that we need more of is, is this greater focus and deeper engagement with the work and the ideas around it. In your role as curator and also wearing the writer hat, you've, you've been involved in bringing artists and collectors together. And I'm curious, what, why is it important um, for that particular connection to develop? Uh, I mean, do the artists and collectors benefit in, in some way or, or does it help emerging artists transition? What, what, what's the, the goal? 
Well, it's not just bringing artists together with collectors. I, I aim to bring everybody together, including the general public. You know, we've developed many different programs, both at MOCA and then at NSU Art Museum, Fort Lauderdale, where we bring the public, including collectors, together with artists, uh, whether it's a uh, intimate roundtable discussion where the artist, uh, a young artist or mid-career artist will present the work in relation to different ideas that they are researching in connection with their work. We also have a, a program called In the Artist Studio, uh, where we lead visits to artist studios. I mean, how many people from the general public get to go to an artist's studio and understand the artist's practice um, or where, the, where art is made or how art is made? And um, we also do art talks, both with collectors, because it is interesting to hear how, why collectors collect, uh, why they're passionate, how much they've learned from it or not. <laughs> but because each collector is completely different. And, and it's important for artists to hear how their work is perceived um, beyond their own studio. So the role that I've played is not just bringing artists and collectors together, but bringing everyone together uh, to understand and engage with and be inspired by work. You've mentioned also, you've used the term demystifying uh, the artist-collector relationship. How would you characterize the old mystique and, and why is it changing? I don't know if it's an old mystique, but there is a hesitancy and collectors don't know, you know, new collectors might not know what to do when they go to an artist studio and it could be awkward and in conversation or, or, you know, what is the protocol? There is no protocol. There is no right way or one uh, wrong way of doing it. But, you know, they have, but to just become familiar with the artists and be comfortable around them and and be able to talk to them and have a deeper understanding of their work as a result of that connection. And then there's some artists who really would prefer not to have any contact with anybody and just want to work in their studio. So there's, you know, all different types of personalities. There's no one way or, or right way of doing that. All right, one more question then about collectors uh, before we move to the final segment of our show. So uh, kind of a fun question. What what do you wish artists knew about collectors, why they collect, what their relationship is to their art, and how they make decisions? I, I often say everybody's special in their own special way. I would not say that there's any one um, thing to know about collectors. Um, there's all kinds of collectors. Um, there's those that... In, in one aspect that they like the story. They like to know what the background of the artist is and how that plays out their work. There are collectors that love having a relationship with artists. And then there's collectors who never want to have a relationship with an artist. They're just interested in, in looking at the work and let the work speak for itself. Uh, so I think the best thing to tell the artist is there isn't any one particular um, way of dealing with collectors. They're as different as everybody else. You know, they are, in most cases, very proud of the work that they've um, acquired and the way that it's presented in their homes or, or private galleries or, whatever, or their offices. So therefore, if 
say, you know, this is invited to a collector's home or office or et cetera, that it is, a, it is important to take a look and see what they're doing and, and express an opinion. Uh, it doesn't have to be uh, flattery. It could be questions. Why did you do this? What, you know, why, why is this artist next to this? Why did you choose that? It's about creating a relationship. And again, collectors, because curators come to see them and dealers come to see them and artists come to see them become a conduit for a new artist to be introduced to others in the art world. You know, so that's another reason for an artist to have that kind of relationship with collectors. Most collectors are very open to uh, talking to artists and, and are inspired by it. They, it really is a passion for most. It isn't just about, although they might be very proud of the fact that an artist that they bought for you know $5,000 is now you know worth hundreds of thousands. They made their choice early without, in most cases, the belief that the work was going to increase in value. Uh, the collectors I know that are interested in, in the emerging or under-recognized artists really are there because they are interested in the work and it's intriguing to them, inspiring to them, and it gives them a, a focus to their thinking and their pursuits in life. So uh, in the final segment of our show, I'd like to ask you a little bit about um, outreach programs uh, from museums uh, in particular. I wonder if you think that a, an outreach program from a major art institution uh, can reconnect people who are not particularly connected to art um, or what they might perceive as a, a big, fancy you know, art institution. Do, do, does one have the power to actually achieve that? Absolutely. And I've, I've been involved doing that for, I don't know, 30 years or more. And um, I, I have to say my greatest joy is working with the general public and seeing their response to the work and grasping the ideas behind it and light bulbs going on over their head and having excitement. Or working with children this week, we had 90 elementary and middle school students from Broward County come to the museum to meet African artist uh, Samson Kambalu, who is also now associate professor at Oxford University. And he's an amazing artist. An artist, by the way, that I spotted at the Armory Art Fair a few years ago with a very quiet, small, silent uh, film and um, decided before I even met him that this was an artist that I wanted for the museum and, in fact, ended up giving him his first solo museum show in the United States. So he, when we did that show, I think it was two years ago, he led a talk about growing up in Malawi, a tiny uh, one of the tiniest countries in the world, so certainly I think the tiniest country in Africa, and he grew up in rural um, Malawi, and how that experience uh, influenced the work that he's creating today. He then led them in the, the students in workshops, and one of the characteristics of his culture is that it was based on the act of gift giving, 
and he gave the children the task of coming up with an intangible gift. And this really excited them. And they truly understood his work as a result of him talking and uh, giving them this exercise to do. We repeated part of that this just this week alone. And again, these children completely connected with him, were inspired. I don't think any of them had ever met an, an artist before and possibly never met someone from Africa before. And this was a thrill for them. And, and it's conceptual work. So being able to connect with the general public, whether it's children or adults, with the art that we're showing is, is very important. Now, I believe um, the NSU Museum currently has an initiative that's uh, specifically targeted toward accessibility for LGBTQ plus seniors and youth. Uh, and in North Miami, you were recognized for creating opportunities for Cuban artists and had a program targeted toward art education for young women. And my question is, uh, do traditionally identified minority groups correlate fairly neatly with those who are disconnected from sort of institutional art venues like museums? And how do you get a sense of who in the community needs to be brought in? I would say there's almost everybody needs to be brought in. Uh, But there were, uh, for instance, when the Women on the Rise program at MOCA was developed, we already had a thriving teen program. And it's uh, we started in '98, and the educator that uh, we had a junior educator at the time who had done research on the subject of the teenage girls were particularly at risk, whereas uh, the boys were being provided with all kinds of programs to keep them out of trouble or to turn their lives around, which particularly had to do with sports or sports-oriented programs. The agencies that were addressing teenage girls at risk really didn't have um, programs that were appealing to them or targeting their interests. So when this junior educator brought this to my attention, I suggested she go ahead and develop the program. And it turned into a really strong and impactful program, including uh, so we uh, trained uh, women artists to work with these students, including going regularly into the juvenile detention centers, working with uh, the teenage girls or um, working with agencies dealing with teenage pregnant girls. And it was very successful. And we really did see Girls that felt isolated, depressed, angry after a two-hour session or laughing, working together on projects, and were being restored to being young girls again. So it does work. Uh, now in Broward County, all of our, ex- our exhibitions touch on a variety of um, community we don't necessarily do an exhibition or program with the idea that it's going to attract one particular aspect of community. We create the programs, we create the exhibitions, and then we approach diverse parts of the community to engage them in whatever we're able to reach them. With this um, LGBTQ plus program, it was already something very natural to the to the museum and our program. 
uh, the Broward Community Foundation had identified uh, seniors and teens in the LGBTQ uh, plus community as particularly at risk, even though uh, that community is one of the largest per capita in, in Broward in the country. For the seniors and for the teens, there was considerable isolation, which is identified as potential for risky behavior, for depression, substance abuse, etc. So the foundation asked us to apply for uh, funding that would create programs that would specifically address this issue. And um, we started that this fall, and it's been very successful. We've worked with a variety of different agencies. We brought workshops to, we've been working with the Broward libraries, um, doing programs at the library, reaching into all different parts of, of Broward, as well as doing exhibitions and talks and and projects at the museum that brings in community. So uh, these are things that are just natural for the museum to be doing. And now we've been able to, with this support, really focus on, on building that initiative. Well, Bonnie, it's been a really powerful show. Uh, my last question is, what's next for you? What are you looking forward to in 2019, either personally or at the museum? Um, well, the museum just celebrated its 60th anniversary, which is a long time in Florida, the earth. And uh, we were able to uh, re-engage with uh, the founders of the museum or their children or families. And we also took the opportunity to really focus on researching our in-depth uh, collection. And so we just opened an exhibition called Remember to React, 60 Years of Collecting that we were able to actually put together a meaningful exhibition drawn completely from our collection uh, that encompassed everything from the core collection that started the, uh, the collection, the uh, African collection, to our Latin American collection, to the fact that we have the largest COBRA, the avant-garde post-World War II European art movement COBRA uh, collection in the U.S., and to artists who are just up-and-coming, emerging, in South Florida and around the world. So that just opened and it's been very exciting to get that out to the public. We're working on a lot of public uh, programming that will engage all different aspects of the community into uh, the museum and to learn the history of this museum. The other thing that has been exciting is to see how Fort Lauderdale and our museum really has become the center for the South Florida Art Coast. Now we have a, a, high, a new high-speed train called the Bright Line that really puts the museum right in the center. We're 30 minutes from downtown Miami and 30 minutes from uh, West Palm Beach. And we're looking forward to really tying that entire region together with us being the hub. You've been listening to The Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Healings Fund for Visual Artists. If you've enjoyed this program, be sure to subscribe to new episodes and review your experience on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you tune in. For more information on Bonnie Clearwater and NSU Art Museum Fort Lauderdale, visit nsuartmuseum.org. For more information on the Clark Healings Fund, visit clarkhealingsfund.org. To sponsor our learning programs with your impactful gift of any size, visit clarkhealingsfund.org donate. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Bonnie. It's been really great having you. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it.